Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. Today, we hear a rebroadcast of a PMA virtual town hall on the carbon economy. Where is the money for the producers? My guests are Martin Lowenfish, the branch chief of area-wide planning at the Natural Resources Conservation Service. In case you don't know, NRCS, formerly known as the Soil Conservation Service, is an agency of the USDA that provides technical assistance to farmers and other private landowners and managers. Martin will give us his view on climate smart agriculture and forestry and the programs he's working on. Next, we hear from two companies who are very active in the space. We have Radhika Mulgolkar from Nori. Nori's goal is to create a platform for anyone to buy carbon credits. Radhika leads the supply and methodology group and is responsible for operationalizing supply into the Nori marketplace and developing new methodologies. And Ben Carson from Granular Corteva, who is a leader of Carbon Credits Ecosystem Services. Corteva is developing a number of partnerships and working with farmers to get carbon payment from their soil health practices. And we hear from Paul Lightfoot. Paul has been deeply involved in food and ag for 20 years. He is using his influence and platform to talk about negative foods. We will hear what he is seeing in the system and what consumers think. After the town hall aired, I had a listener that wanted to dig deeper into the question of what is in it for producers. Listen at the end of the podcast to hear where that conversation netted out. I will drop you into the conversation as we jump into these carbon topics. Good morning and good afternoon to everyone. Um, thank you for being part of this call. Um, like all of you, I'm interested in where we are now with the carbon economy and where this is all headed. From introducing practices to sequester carbon and reduce greenhouse gases on farm, to taking a valid soil sample, to analyzing that sample, to monetizing all of this to the farmer, there's a great deal of complexity and unknowns. How is data collected? What is valid data? Who gets to say what valid data is? How does a producer get credit? What part does the government play? And what do consumers think? We will try to unpack some of these questions and more today um, with my guests. We have a great group of people that really span this whole part of the system of the carbon economy. So let's start with uh, Martin and find out about what's going on with USDA and the government and um, what you're thinking about. So can you tell us, uh, Martin, what you do and um, what's going on at the agency? All right. Well, thank you, Bonnie, and uh, great to be talking with everyone today. Uh, I, as uh, Paul was just saying, I'm the uh, um, 
at Branch Chief for Area-Wide Planning at NRCS. And so I'll use that term, NRCS, uh, just to get the acronyms out of the way. Hopefully you're all uh, familiar with that. But for nearly 100 years, uh, since the Dust Belt Bowl, uh, NRCS is providing farmers, ranchers, and forest landowners with assistance to conserve their agricultural resources, and by extension, the natural resources of the, of the nation. Um, and now we, we know very much that uh, carbon is part of that uh, equation. And at the highest level, uh, NRCS provides farmers, ranchers, and forest owners, and I'm going to say just farmers for, uh, for simplicity here, uh, with financial and technical assistance to address the conservation needs on, on their operations. So, uh, you know, that, that is key for us in that NRCS is a, uh, works with producers on a voluntary basis. So we can provide assistance to, uh, to farmers who ask us for the help. Uh, the biggest source of funding we have to meet those needs is the Farm Bill, which provides about $4 billion annually, mostly to plan and uh, cost share, though it's not technically called cost share anymore, certain legal niceties, but uh, to provide that financial assistance or cost share for conservation improvements on, on farmers' lands. Uh, significant funding also goes to, to easement programs. So around carbon sequestration and the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, what what are the programs um, that NRCS is getting involved with and, and what are the programs in those areas that are available? Well, you know, before I do any sort of deep dive onto the NRCS part, I, I want to highlight some of the secretary's agenda here. And, uh, you know, the first thing is, um, you know, back in May, the department uh, published a 90-day plan uh, that really, you know, high, highlighted some central principles and that central to USDA's approach is the concept that to be effective, whatever we do must work for farmers, ranchers, and landowners, and that we must pursue strategies that create uh, new markets, you know, that talks to the, uh, to the purpose of this webinar today, new markets for rural America to build wealth that stays in rural communities. Uh, that's available on the web, easy to find, and I'm, I'm sure we can provide some links uh, to this distribution if we want to. Now, I'm not going to read that uh, that report to you. It's been read into the record. It's available to you. But uh, some of the highlights there that uh, the Secretary has positioned us to prepare USDA to quantify, track, and report the benefits of what our buzzword here is climate-smart agriculture and forestry practices. So that quantification piece is is key to the approach that we want to leverage existing programs uh, and also support new and better markets for agriculture and forestry products generated through these climate smart agriculture and forestry practices. Also note that the Secretary Vilsack uh, spoke last week, had a big climate announcement um, that is available on, uh, on, on YouTube. Again, we can share some links. Um, key to that and, and to this group is that we have a big request for information that that's out on the federal register right now. There's a secretary indicated that he, we have existing programs, but he also indicated that there's going to be about another 500 billion uh, available through a new climate smart agriculture and forestry partnership program. And we're taking comments now about how to best shape that program. Um, otherwise, you know, that's all the future and the broad plans. But uh, like I said, we, we do provide that voluntary assistance to address natural resource concerns on, on your operation. In plain language, that's conservation issues like soil erosion, 
loss of nutrients to surface or groundwater and, and air quality issues among, you know, among many there. And often uh, those conservation systems that address those other needs also result in uh, carbon sequestration and greenhouse gas uh, reductions. Um, and uh, I think that's the biggest part that we can play is supporting these, these climate smart agriculture and forestry uh, practices on, on working operations. Great, thanks. Um, so the best way for people to get in, engaged and, and see what's going on is to go to the website and there's links there for them to get their questions answered. Yeah, well, no, absolutely. And, and engaging with NRCS, you know, certainly there's the website, but one of the most valuable tools on our website is um, the, the Office Finder, where you can get information about contacting your local office. So NRCS has nearly 3,000 offices around the country where we have planners and program folks out there who are working with individual producers, farmers to, uh, to develop solutions for, for their operations. So, you know, con look to find your state's NRCS website, look to find your local office, look to find your state conservationist who's the lead for NRCS in, in each state. Um, and, uh, you know, we can talk about that some more, but really we are, we are a locally led agency and we have staff and partner staff all across the country for you to engage with. Great. All right. Thank you. We'll circle back around and talk more about your involvement. But for right now, let's um, move on to two of the companies who are very involved in this space and are working with producers and figuring out how to capture, model, measure and monetize. Um, I will have you both introduce yourselves and then uh, we will ask questions. So first, Radhika, please tell us about uh, Nori and your role. Yeah, thanks, Bonnie, for having me, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, as was mentioned, my name is Radhika. I work for a company called Nori. We're based in Seattle, and we're a voluntary carbon marketplace. So um, some people might have heard of registries like Vera Gold Standard. We are sort of like them in that we have developed our own methodology for creating carbon credits for U.S. Uh, cropland producers. But we also take it one step further in that we create the carbon credit, which is called an NRT or a Nori Carbon Removal Ton. We um, sell it and we sell it on our marketplace. So we have both suppliers who create the credit and demand, which are the buyers who purchase our carbon credits. So that's Great. us in a nutshell. <laughs> All right, Ben, um, you work with farmers who are changing their practices and, and getting credits. And you started with Granular, which is now Corteva, and there's some other programs that Corteva is uh, working on. So tell us about um, what you're doing and what your role is. Yeah, thanks, Fani. Um, Corteva is you know, one of the largest pure play agriculture companies in the United States and beyond large footprint and row crops and specialty. And you really think about that footprint. Um, we really see our role in the space as you know, focusing on the farmer and providing access to those programs um, and really focusing in on you know, where we can play best, which is really you know, we have significant sales and support outreach so that we can actually help farmers with the practice change, not just a program. We have digital tools to help simplify um, the, the tracking and the quantification. And then we work across multiple programs with folks like Nori um, and others, Indigo and ESMC, to provide farmers access to these programs. So we don't build marketplaces. We don't do our own quantification. We really focus on a lot of that support um, that we can provide and simplicity uh, and trying to drive to scale 
in this space because uh, you know a lot of folks call it the, the Wild West. Um, we're, we're trying to change that from a, a simplicity standpoint um, and not try to do everything in this space and just really, really focus on the farmer. So Ben, and, and then the farmer is your customer. You're, that's who you're interacting with anyway, with all your other inputs and all the other things that Corteva does. And so what, so when you go and you talk to a producer about the carbon um, economy and potential carbon credits, what's the conversation and are, are you selling them something or like what, what's the interaction there? Uh, you know, some would say I'm a really lazy salesperson, so I'm trying to sell sell a check uh, or revenue. But uh, before we even get to that, um, the, <laughs> the first things we talk about are agronomy, agronomy, agronomy. Then let's talk about carbon. Payments today don't justify a lot of these practice transitions by themselves. And so these things have to make sense holistically. And even if you look at the climate accounting, yield still matters, land use changes. And, you know, farmers are here to, to run a big business. And so really for us, it's, you know, how do we look at the whole systems level view, not just about our products or what we're doing? You know, is this the right choice for an operation? And then where can a carbon program de-risk or accelerate a practice change? Now, when you combine things with, uh, you know, USDA programs, the NRCS has been doing this a long time other programs that exist, um, you know, I think we'll, we'll be able to expand it. So more and more folks, um, the business case will make sense both economically and economically. Um, but today it's really that focus on those that have some interest in these practices today. And then we help to kind of tip the scale on the, the business case so they can move either faster or with a little less risk. Great. Thanks. And Radhika, from what you said, it sounds like um, both people are your customers. So explain kind of how your business model works and and kind of what your product is and, and how you interact on both sides of the chain. Yeah. So, um, you know, we also work directly with um, some farmers, not in the same way that Ben's company does. Obviously, we work with them to bring their data, which is where we work with the Cortevas of the world to bring their data into our system. We model that data uh, through a tool called Soil Metrics, which then creates our, the incremental carbon change due to that practice change. And that is the value that we monetize or quantify, as Ben um, mentioned. And that's what I call what I mentioned earlier, the NRT or the Nori carbon removal ton. That represents one ton of carbon dioxide sequestered in the soil for 10 years. And that is what we then sell to our buyers um, one of Nori's goals is to always ensure that all levels of both farmer and buyer can participate in our marketplace, which has sometimes been a barrier in previous um, iterations of these registries. So we, um, our real goal is to make sure that even the smallest buyer and the smallest supplier can participate, as I mentioned. And so we list them on our marketplace and we have people, individuals buying like one NRT or whatever they think their carbon footprint for the year might be to all the way up to um, big corporations who are interested in partnering with us to uh, purchase buyers. Our sweet spot is sort of that small and medium sized business who really is interested in their carbon footprint and how to do a better job, how to be sustainable, You know, often working within local communities. And um, you know, our product, to them is easy, they understand what it is, and they don't have to do a lot of due diligence to feel like they are making an impact. Great. Um, yeah, there's so many different questions <laughs> to go on with this one. Uh, one I did want to ask, because I get confused in just looking at different marketplaces. So is there a set price of carbon? Like, where are we on pricing of carbon? And, and either one of you can answer that one. 
I would say no, there's no set price of carbon as Ben, I'm sure is well aware working with Indigo and ESMC on Nori's marketplace right now, we're selling for $15. Uh, and that's the set price the farmer set. So in our marketplace, a farmer determines the price they want to pay for carbon uh, or they want people to pay them for carbon. So it's $15. We take a transaction fee on top of that that we charge the buyer. So they get all of that $15. Um, if we really want to go down the rabbit hole, but we probably don't have time, we're also launch, We're also a cryptocurrency company. So we're launching uh, Nori, which is a, a cryptocurrency token, which we hope will drive true price discovery around carbon, because I think we can all agree that the current pricing in the U.S. particularly is way too low for the type of change we want to drive. And Ben, you probably don't get that involved in the price then. If, if you're kind of, you're working with the farmer, but then you're working through your your partnership networks that are setting the, the price more. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we have to, to some extent. A farmer is not going to just sign up without understanding what, the, what their forward pricing is going to look like. So the way that we structure our contracts is we want to be on the same side of the table as the farmer. So we guarantee now and in the future in simple, both English and legalese, uh, that you know 75% of the credit value is going to go to the farmer. And then we have a $15 a ton price minimum. Um, really, that's because we we see you know carbon credit pricing go significantly increasing. You can look at you know Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, everyone and their dog um, has a projection out there. And really, we want to make sure that our farmers are able to capture that upside, and we're not artificially locking them in, so they can hold us accountable to not only have aligned incentives but to re-earn the business. Great. And Radhika, on the um, the cryptocurrency is um, I know one of the the problems around carbon credits is that they get resold or there's no way to really trace them. So is the cryptocurrency a way to, to see, are you setting that up so that um, you can kind of track them and it, it can't be corrupted, that they can be resold, the credits? Yeah, actually, you totally hit the nail on the head, um, Bonnie. I didn't mention it, but our NR, so we have actually two crypto assets. We have the NRT, which I mentioned, and the Nori token, which we haven't launched. The NRT is also written to the blockchain. And so when it is sold, it gets retired and can never be resold again. The answer then, then the question becomes, well, what's the commodity that's trading? And the commodity that we want to trade eventually is the Nori, which rep, you know, represents the carbon credit, but every time it's used, a new, a new NRT would be retired and sold. So more carbon is constantly being drawn down, but the Nori can be recycled within the, um, you know, the, within the economic community. So um, yes. That is our hope that this will be a solution to some of the carbon accounting problems out there. So to both of you again, um, what do you think is missing in the technology of sampling data analysis and reporting? There's that, that whole layer of how, you know, how do we sample and then do we model and how accurate are the models and, and how is the data analyzed? And, and that piece to me, because I'm looking at the technology of all this is really exciting, but where are we there? And do we have a long ways to go before we feel really confident in that and, and, and how good is good enough? Yeah, I guess I would say you need to start with what the buyers need um, and start with the money. Um, and really, that comes down to what type of asset are you generating? So there's obviously a, nor- a Nori asset that Radica has uh, described, but then there are you know just offsets from registries or scope-free emissions reductions. And 
all of them have different requirements. And so I think, you know, the biggest thing that's missing, at least from my seat in the house, is a little bit of standardization. There's no number two yellow carbon out there. Um, there's not the same grading you'd see. And especially, you know, if you look at, you know, the, a lot of the folks who are PMA members, um, you know, it's going to really, you know, really come down to, you know, what is the claim that either a company is trying to make or they're trying to, you know, influence with a consumer? Because that's going to directly dictate the measurement uncertainty that you're willing to tolerate and which is then going to dictate what the underlying technology that we need is. Yeah, I would I would agree with Ben. And I, I would add that I think, you know, it is very early days in soil carbon and um, there's a lot of excitement, which generates, I think, a lot of new ideas and, and um, visions. But at the same time, it has to be tempered with the reality that even the science of the soil, even if you're measuring it, there's not, a, you know, it, it's not clear always about the incremental carbon, the amount of carbon being stored, the long-term storage. And so I feel um, like we are making great progress and all of this work actually only helps develop the models, helps develop soil sampling and testing that is both cost-effective and practical because that's one of the things we struggle with at Nori is how do you roll out something that both a farmer can afford to do or a third party and potentially and also doesn't disrupt their um, disrupt the way they farm and is also academically meaningful. That being said, we all this data that we're providing to the models through our system, we think is improving the models. And it's just, you know, with the different programs that the USDA is thinking of rolling out, you can see all sorts of opportunities to make it better and smarter and, and more efficient. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting time, um, early stage of, of any kind of, of business opportunity or technology and that, you know, we could measure every tiny little micron in the soil and we could, you know, make it really complicated and super costly and get all the information um, eventually. But it, we, like you said, we need something that you can roll out that is cost effective and people can actually use. And so trying to find that sweet spot of what is really going to work to give us the information that we need and not make it so cumbersome um, just because we can get the data. So I think it's a really interesting time to, to figure out that, that balance. Um, so I'm going to, we'll come back to you guys, but I am going to move down the supply chain and talk to Paul. And before um, I get started with Paul, to the audience, um, we are going to open it to audience questions, as Scott said in the beginning. So start thinking about your questions and, and I'll be reading them um, as you type them in um, because we want to get everybody involved in this conversation. I have tons of questions, but I, I know other people do too, because this is such a new area. So moving to Paul. Um, so Paul, I've been, uh, we've talked a number of times and I've been really excited about your long history in food and ag, and now you're using your insight and your voice and your platform, um, to, uh, you have a newsletter called negative foods newsletter that discusses how a food system based on carbon negative foods can be a lever to reverse climate change. And you've been making a lot of noise about this and, and it's great to have, um, a voice out there. Um, so let's just jump in and what can you tell us what you mean when you say negative foods and talk a little bit about your newsletter and kind of what your orientation is right now? Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for having me. And thanks for that fun question. So I think, you know, just super high level, right? The, the food system is responsible for, let's say, a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. It, some people say more, some people say less, but let's start with that. And, and which means it's just as important as transportation and energy and lots of other things as well. Food, though, is different than those other things. It's unique. 
in a couple of ways. One is that, you know, we have to eat constantly, right? Every person has to keep eating every day to survive. So we, we're making personal choices that directly impact our, our personal carbon footprints in a way that's a little bit different often with, with transportation and energy. But it's also unique in that some foods can have carbon negative footprints. And that's what I mean by negative foods, foods with, let's say, neutral or negative carbon footprints. And what I mean by that is that some food can be produced in a way that doesn't release carbon, but 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 draws carbon from the atmosphere. And so if we can eat food that draws down carbon on a net basis, the food system can be a lever to reverse climate change. We may get to renewable energy in, in the United States, like, like it is in a place like Iceland, let's say, and then you're getting to, to, to neutral or flat. But with food, we could imagine a future world where large parts of the food system aren't neutral or flat, but are actually a lever to pull carbon from the atmosphere. That's great. And can you give some examples? I, I've seen several examples in your newsletter, but just give some examples of, of types of foods or companies that you've yeah. seen that, that are going this direction. Yeah, I think maybe the one that's that's starkest and, and maybe most important and, and a little bit easiest to understand because it's been studied a lot is, is beef. And, and I'll start with that because industrial beef is probably the worst offending uh, actor in, in the climate space. And, you know, and I say that recognizing a lot of people might not like that, but that's that's the reality, right? If you're eating industrial beef, you are cranking a lever that's releasing a, a ton of greenhouse gas emissions both from the way that the cows are, are, are fed, you know, they're, they're, they're eating grains that are produced with, with fertilizer that's, that's produced with natural gas. They're often grown in places where deforestation released thousands of years of stored carbon and, and the animals themselves are releasing a lot of methane. It's, it's, a, it's a catastrophe for, uh, for, for greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. But if you're growing beef in what we'll call a regenerative way, and, and I won't go into details on that, there's lots of people more expert, including at the NRCS, than I am on that. But if you're growing beef regeneratively, which takes a lot more space, which can be more expensive to do in some cases, you can actually have beef that's being that's being produced in a way that's removing carbon from the atmosphere. A couple of companies recently have, have, have talked about LCAs that they've had done. One is White Oaks Pasture, another is Belcampo. And there's a couple other companies out there like, like Hickory Nut Gap that are starting to market their beef as regenerative, meaning it's climate positive or it's, as I say, a negative food. So that's an example where I think consumers could see themselves shifting their food choices from one of the worst actors on, on a climate scale to one of the best actors. And it's the easiest example, I think, for people to understand. Yeah, there was an article in The Economist recently about you know, is beef the next coal, you know, because, because it does have a, a huge effect. And, and there's ways to mitigate that. It doesn't mean that everyone has to stop eating beef. Um, so what role, where do consumers come in on this and, and what, do what do consumers know now? And is, is there going to be a pull by consumers? Is that how this whole thing is, is going to get funded and move forward by consumer pull? And how does that happen? Yeah, well, it's it's. Um, I agree with what Radhika said earlier that it's it's early days, right? And so we can pull out our crystal balls. It's very hard to see what the future is gonna 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 store. A lot of smart people don't think it will be consumers changing changing things. I happen to think that consumers will be a driving force. I think we're already seeing that consumers are increasingly choosing foods with improved carbon footprints. And I think next year, when you see you know big food companies like Unilever start voluntarily putting carbon labels on their products, I think you're going to see consumer demand favoring foods, and that's going to create a virtuous cycle that makes this a bit of a race at the top. But consumers already perceive 
to some degree correctly that negative foods are better for the planet because they reverse climate change. They're starting to see that in many cases, it's also better for their health. Generally, uh, healthy soil will lead to more nutrition and food, right? So there's this beautiful correlation between food that's good for the planet and food that's good for your human health. And consumers, in my opinion, will pay more for such foods and will choose negative foods over other foods, meaning negative foods will increasingly create capture greater market share. And when this happens, you're going to see market forces guiding farmers and food companies toward more practices that are regenerative and, and store carbon. And I think, you know, I, I'm not I'm not the guy that talks about, you know, the, the best practices of no-till and animal integration and, and cover crops and things like that. I'm the one that's out there talking about how when consumers choose these sorts of food, food startups and big food companies will increasingly offer these sorts of foods. And those market forces will incentivize the farming industry uh, to transform itself to be more regenerative. And I think over the next five years, you're going to see you know, what I call a, a cheerful tidal wave of carbon negative foods to the market. And that rise in market share of, of negative foods is going to be one of the factors that draws carbon from the atmosphere and helps us as a society reverse climate change in the future. How how will consumers know? Like, what what's the best way to communicate with them? Do you do you think that that they'll know? Say say it's something like produce where there's not a lot of labeling. Um, uh, how will we communicate with consumers to let them know this is a food that is grown in a certain way? Yeah. So you're asking the uh, the hardest question or the, or the part of the puzzle that's the least solved right now. Consumers don't have good information right now. And that's, in my opinion, a catastrophe. If consumers could see clear information on the carbon footprint of their foods, I think you would see shifts happening at dramatically faster rates than we're seeing now. So I do think that carbon labeling is the is the super biggest, most important missing thing in the marketplace. Um, I think that governments in the United States are very far from implementing any sort of standardization. I think you're actually going to see big food companies doing it first. And I, I mentioned the example of Unilever. There's a lot of European companies that are that are that are even further along in, in the EU and the UK. And I think that when you do see effective carbon labeling, and I mean effective, meaning it gives knowledge to consumers that they can trust and they can act on, that's when you're going to start really seeing the flywheel start to spin. But for Let's, now, by the way, it's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of leads to a question. I want to uh, open it back up to everybody and just ask each of you, what do you what do you see is needed for this total system to work? And I think by total system, you know, we're trying to mitigate uh, climate change and, and reverse climate change. And then we're also trying to there's kind of two things. We're trying to set up this carbon credit system that uh, that gets people to start using these these different kinds of systems and and make healthier soil. Um, so, what do each of you think is missing and and from where you sit? And it sounds like Paul. Let's start with you. It sounds like you think you know really communicating with the consumers is probably the thing that's missing. Is that? Would you yeah, say? Although, since I already said that, I'll add, I'll add one more thing. Okay, Which add another that, one. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you've, so there's, there's, there's a few things that are happening right now that are amazing and amazingly good. And one of them is that the world's biggest investors, like the LPs and all the funds, these are the sovereign wealth funds, these are the endowments, these are the, the big foundations and fam offices. They've, they're all putting these sort of ESG mandates 
on the asset managers that are putting the money into the marketplace. And a lot of these mandates are, are focused on reversing climate change. And because there aren't that many places for it to happen, there is pressure funneling toward food, right? One of our problems, putting aside carbon labeling, which I think is, is one of the biggest problems, is that there's not a good definition of what regenerative is, let's say. And I think we're running the risk as a society of regenerative um, you know, being greenwashed or, or 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 being made a little bit meaningless, like like sort of natural is as a, as a label right now. So I think that getting to a, a point where regenerative is defined in a way that the world's biggest and most serious investors could believe in, I think that would end up shifting more more capital towards solving these problems. Martin, you want to jump in on that one? Well, yeah, and and you know as. As USDA, or at least my part of USDA, we don't have a lot to say about the, about the community, uh, the consumer side. But uh, I'd like to sort of pick up something that that Ben mentioned, and that you know, as producers adopt these new production practices, ones that can be regenerative, uh, sequester carbon, and otherwise, um, you know, build soil health. There's there's not a small amount of risk. And, you know, even though they can recognize that uh, for their own, uh, you know, broadly that there's, there's production benefits uh, as well as these broader uh, goods that are being produced to them, you know, there is an adoption curve. Uh, and that's something where, you know, NRCS can help both with the payments and the technical assistance as well as the market. So there's a, there's a basket of tools here for, for producers to use as they shift their production methods um, that even though they they are broadly beneficial and can be beneficial to their options, it's it's still a learning curve and uh, it's a big decision that a producer has to make each year. Great, thanks. Ben or Radhika, any idea on what's needed for the total system to work? I, I would just probably lean towards a, a little bit more on standardization. I think we're seeing tremendous increases in the in technologies to measure whether it's nitrous oxide or other greenhouse gases, as well as soil carbon, often supported by uh, you know government and public private partnerships. Um, but when we really get down to it, like if we we still don't have simple incentives or simple ways to at least quantify the accuracy of how we measure, and as soon as we're able to connect the financial incentives with the scientific incentives, we're going to be able to build programs and the market itself will drive simplicity. Um, today, there's just a little too much complexity and there's a lot of zero sum thinking in agriculture. And so a lot of us probably just need to get over ourselves a little bit and realize we're not <laughs> going to own the whole value chain. And now, uh, you know, we need to partner with uh, with all players. Yeah, I, I would say I think a lot about transparency and connections. I think that there we really do still lack a lot of transparency from what Paul mentioned around what consumers think they're purchasing versus what it really means, all the way up to the supply chain. We lack transparency within the accounting of these carbon credits and how you generate that. And I think, as Ben was saying, that requires partnerships and connections and a role of like the government in probably standardizing things as well as the private sector and working together to, to figure these big picture questions out. Because when I take a step back as a consumer, I'm always confused and <laughs> I would like to do what's right, but I don't know what's right. And so I feel like that they're all, all parts of the supply chain play a role in this and the voluntary carbon markets do as well. Great. I'm starting to get some questions um, from the audience and please keep those coming. So I'm going to shift to some of these. Um, 
So uh, anyone can answer this, but Paul's kind of been the one that's been touching on this. Um, is there any evidence that consumers would be willing to pay more for carbon friendlier products? So uh, I'm going to I'm going to make an analogy that I think is responsive. Um, it's debatable about whether the organic movement has fulfilled its promise, right? Like when, when organics became main, mainstream, the hope is that it would reduce the use of pesticides um, in this country and, and, and sort of be better for the environment. As I think everyone on the call knows, like almost none of American farmland is organic, right? And the use of pesticides and synthetic fertilizers has, has increased a lot in the last 20 years. So in some ways, organic hasn't met its promises. That might be controversial. But one thing it's shown for, for sure, I don't think this is debatable, is that consumers will pay more for the perceived benefits of food that's better for the environment and better for their health. And I think that we can take to the bank. Like to the degree that consumers see food that's produced with better carbon footprints, let's say that's that's got a regenerative supply chain, I'm absolutely certain they'll pay more for it based on what we've seen in the last 20 years with organics. So I think the, I think the answer is a resounding yes. And, and right now people don't really get this connection that I think that I hope will become better known, which is the connection between soil health and human health, right? If a food is better for, for the, for the climate, it's almost certainly going to be better for your nutrition as well. And I hope that the science and the standardization catches up on that as well, because that will even goose the demand for, consumers to pay more, even higher. Great, thanks. Um, does Corteva or, and or Nori work internationally, especially Guatemala? We just started a carbon program, but technology and information are very hard to get or find. We do not, unfortunately, at this point, we're US croplands focused only, but we're a small little startup, we're growing. We definitely wanna move into Latin America. We have some, um, partners who really want us to move into Latin America. So I do believe it'll be happening in the future. I just can't tell you when in the future. Yeah, and not a small little startup, uh, but a somewhat similar story and probably for a lot of the similar reasons. Um, one of the big things, and I, I know I'm a broken record here, but you know, how do we quantify and how do we have the data to make sure that we're actually measuring real outcomes? That's really the big barrier, whether it's new geographies or new cropping systems, um, which is a big thing, I think, in produce, especially where you have crops that have smaller acreage footprints, maybe not as much research behind them, or in specific geos where it's similar. All of a sudden, the uncertainties of how we measure our you know, increase in the error bars are higher than you know, even what the payments uh, might be. And so I think there's a scientific element of that, and then there's just the normal business element. Um, but I think there's a lot of folks, um, both public and private, including us, that are working on uh, international expansion and expansion to new, uh, new model model domains like new crops. Um, here's a question I don't know that we'll have the answer to, but it's interesting. Um, at one time, food miles was presented as a reliable decision basis to benefit the environment. It has then, it was then largely discredited. What is the current thinking on food miles? Does anyone have an, a, a view on that or how it's looked at? I feel like I, I, I championed a local produce company for, for a long time and still do. So maybe I should uh, maybe I should be on the defensive on that question. I actually I don't think it ever was a broad brush rule, you know, like being local was only better when it was better. Right. So, you know, products that stored and shipped very cheaply like grains, I don't think we're, we're likely to be a better for the environment when they were grown locally. If the circumstances weren't better for growing, I don't think that's 
that was different 20 years ago than 10 years ago or, or 10 weeks ago. Um, at Bright Farms, we thought that decentralized salads produced in the same communities was better. So I, I don't think I don't think anything has changed necessarily. I still think it's a matter of the actual footprint of the production methods and the way that it's shipped. It's and that's that's by the way something that should be able to be done somewhat mathematically. Is there a danger that environmental activist groups will use negative publicity such as the dirty dozen list to highlight ag commodities with a big carbon footprint? If commodities have high carbon footprints, I hope they get negative publicity. Bring it. <laughs> I guess I, all I was going to say is I think that has a real opportunity to get in front of this and, you know, to provide a better story than what could be out there. And so um, I think nobody disputes those facts. It's just what's your response to those facts. And I think and, and I think that's where these opportunities will lie. And the better we do in being transparent, the better we will be with our story to the, you know, environmental activists and the rest. I think from a PMA perspective, I mean, we certainly um, highlight member stories in like our sustainability cases. And I think uh, around this area um, with, with the carbon economy, we're right now just trying to help our members understand what the opportunities are. And, you know, we will continue to, to highlight success stories and, and communicate this as we're all trying to kind of understand it. And Vani, with, with respect to PMA, it's probably worth remembering that whole fruits and vegetables are almost certainly on the good actor end of the spectrum compared to most of our food system. So there's, they're, they're in a, a hell of a good starting place. What do you think about how reducing food loss, the amount of food not sold, left in the field or otherwise culled out during farm operations, would help reduce greenhouse gas emissions? Greater sell-through of product grown may increase income for farmers or get su surplus food to people in need. Is there a role for the carbon economy to stimulate these benefits? Yeah, just say if you look at you know, w, the, the World Resource Institute and other organizations that spend a lot of time thinking about this, it's one of the biggest levers that's identified out there. Um, I think the big question as it relates to carbon programs is, you know, what what's the right, you know, we, we don't want these programs to be, you know, one size fits all because then they get incredibly overly complex. And so it's just finding, you know, what's the right benefit from the, the combination of incentives and kind of environmental and economic um, usually there's pretty significant economic incentives to do that already. And so it's, you know, where, where do you need the environmental incentive to maybe push things over the top? A product like mushrooms grows in natural composted agricultural materials. And after harvest, there is nitrogen rich compost that can be reused. Can it be considered a carbon negative food or would you need to evaluate many other aspects to determine? <laughs> uh so I'm not the, you know, I'm not the outcome measurement expert. My, you know, and, and maybe Radhika could, could weigh in on this as well. Um, I'll, I'll peg you as the expert, but it sounds pretty good to me. I mean, if you're, if you're growing on compost, your inputs presumably, you know, don't have emissions associated with them. Uh, and then it depends on what other parts of your operations you're dealing with, like packaging and transportation. If you can find a way to offset that, you know, with agroforestry or, or other activities, I think they're probably well on the way. But I, Radhika, I would be interested if you have an opinion on that. It's an interesting question. I, I, I can't. No, I think you you kind of very well 
synopsized it. Um, and Ben made these similar, um, said something about how in other countries we lack the modeling or the research or the, that is the barrier oftentimes to bringing crops, at least into our system, is that if there's not the scientific research behind it, you know, um, we can't really tell you how much incremental carbon is being stored for because it's just not there to tell us. So um, again, we know of a lot of producer, produce providers, suppliers who are doing all the right things, orchards, and right now the science isn't there within our model to help them come to the carbon marketplaces, which is unfortunate and definitely seems like something that's imminently solvable with the right resources and right funding. I guess I would I ask. That, that is one area, Bonnie, that the government can help, right? There's there's so much research to be done. And, and those are areas that it, it, I know you might have asked that at some point, Bonnie. I am generally believe in markets, you know, not government interventions, but that research is, is sorely needed. Yeah. So, Martin, do you see, I think as we look at the produce industry, it is so different than row crops and just doing cover crops and no-till, those systems probably aren't going to work as well. And so are there specific things that you think um, that the government can help the produce industry with, or does it just fit into the different programs that you have broadly? Well, I'll have to answer somewhat broadly. And then so one in, you know, again, that secretary's vision, you know, research is one of the elements, you know, there's seven, seven point plan for the, the climate smart agriculture and forestry and, and, and research is one of those pieces. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll note also that, you know, at NRCS, we've been part of a consortium that's developed the, the Comet uh, tool that really works mostly on uh, on cropland and you know that is something it's not proprietary we it's available on the website and I know it's incorporated into a, a, a number of uh, a number of private industry partners and, and other partners so you know we've been contributing to that research and provide information to producers as to you know the conservation systems and production systems that they've got in place. Uh, we can be a resource or there's web resources uh, for them to use those, those comic data. Um, but I like, like you were saying, I don't think it covers mushrooms or, or some of the other specialty crops right now, uh, but certainly a focus on research for the broader climate smart agenda. Yeah, I think um, as in a lot of these early types of things, you know, having some pre-competitive technology that gets done is a really great idea. And I think that's, that's a great role of government <laughs> is to have some of this pre-competitive technology done. So like, so we don't have a bunch of startups that are all doing the same thing. Um, and, and we're diffusing the amount of capital that can be spent and invested in those types of things. And so that's where I love seeing, you know, these different programs where people can get, um, get funded, or we've got labs that are funded, you know, to do some of the pre-competitive work. Does a farmer who has been practicing good growing practices need to demonstrate a delta in carbon capture in order to participate in the carbon market? It's a hot button. Ben, <laughs> we'll let you start. Uh, in most of the programs, yes, today. Um, there are obviously some exceptions with how assets have been defined. Um, I really think it comes down to what's the right asset for the right purpose. If we're talking offsets, 
um, that I think it's almost it's pretty no question like we need we need to make sure that there is that very hard and fast additionality. I think there's a really big question that's still open in terms of are there alternative assets where either because of consumer pull, financial pull, the things that Paul talked about, um, where a low carbon producer can get rewarded in another way, but maybe it's not gonna be a carbon program. I come from North Dakota, um, like my family and almost my whole team like has family that, that are early adopters. We catch a lot of gut for it. And um, you know, I think it, it just, it comes down to, you know, start with the money uh, where it's coming from, you know, who is the buyer, whether that, you know, is the government down the road, or if it's, you know, just the end consumer, that's going to determine who's eligible. And so, you know, as Corteva, like we don't, we don't, we're not in the protocol writing business for it. Our job is to provide access um, because we probably don't want input companies doing that in, in all reality. Um, so I just say, start with the money. Radhika, I'm sure you get this question all the time. <laughs> Yeah, and my my answer would be very similar to Ben's, and we 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 sincerely wish we could bring in producers who have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years because we know they've been doing the right thing for a long time, but we don't have people who want to purchase those carbon credits, unfortunately. The bottom line is people are interested in quote-unquote new carbon, and so... Um, we want to make sure we provide a product that is sellable because if you're gonna do all the work to put it into our system, we wanna make sure you get the financial reward. Again, a place where potentially the federal government can play a role or other types of marketplaces can play a role, but not a carbon removal marketplace, at least at this time. So do you all see this turning into a, a global market? I mean, it sounds like right now from um, what we're all talking about is more kind of U.S.-based. Um, but I know like Australia is really um, up in front on this and Europe's, you know, doing a lot of work on it. So do you think that it'll be a global market or that um, countries will kind of do their own thing for a while anyway? Certainly, Nori's hope is a global market. We that's kind of what we are we are pushing and towards, and have like I said, partners and investors who want us and want this to become a true global commodities market for carbon removal. Um, it'll be it'll be an interesting next five years as you look through the regulatory space to see how these different countries choose to regulate these different spaces and how you can then create a commodity mark, you know, a brand new commodities market in that system. But I think it's doable and definitely should be the ultimate goal. Carbon doesn't no borders. So, you know, nor should the marketplace. I think some of those Australian uh, uh, projects have been bought by American companies. So it seems like it's already a global marketplace. I just think that our market is behind a lot of the world. Hmm. I think it's going to come down to the type of asset. I think you already see, you know, in the offsets, you see it being more global, but um, where things will be tied to commodities. In some cases, it'll be global. Look at the American Soybean Association, their sustainability protocol, and a lot, and that's driven a lot of sales to Europe, where you have a more conscious consumer there. I think you'll see something similar, and especially for your membership. Um, I think it'll just kind of depend on the footprints that they're looking at, and again, who that end buyer is. Is it a big, big oil company or something like that who's trying to buy an offset? Are you tying it to the commodity or the, the end product itself to make a brand claim um, or a carbon label claim to drive uh, increased sales or meet a social commitment? What do you tell the American consumer and companies who say, why should we pay for reducing carbon emissions when China emits so much more and then competes with us in the marketplace? Getting into politics here. <laughs> 
Anyone want to grab that one? <laughs> well, if nobody wants to, I will. I mean, I, I always recommend people read Bill Gates's book, How to Avoid a Climate Disaster. He, he lays out the fact that we emit as a society 51 billion tons a year, and, and it's like a bathtub filling up. We need to stop filling up the bathtub, right? It, not we can only stop our part if they stop their part over there. So I, I you know, I, I think that it's the, the the logic behind the question is flawed in my opinion. Like everybody has to stop. Certainly, the U.S. being behind a lot of the developed world isn't helping the rest of the world move along faster. If we were ahead of them, I think it would help the rest of the world move along faster. You know, and and if we collaborated, that would be good as well. One of the things that not, it's not talked about a lot is that I think I think poverty is is a lot of the problem. You see farmers in other countries engaging in, in destructive practices like burning rainforest, partly because they don't have better options and they're living in poverty. Um, solving some of the world's poverty might be a helpful thing as well if we're talking about politics. There are 500 to 600 million acres of farmland and the same in forests and woodlands. Is specialty agriculture at a few million acres too small to make a significant contribution um, comparing the number of acres of grapes to the number of acres of corn? I mean, I'd say there's there's two areas where specialty I think can perform in an outsized manner. One is there are cropping systems related to certain specialty crops that can accrue a lot more on a per acre basis than broad acre row crops, um, especially where you have orchards um, or similar systems. Um, the second piece is you're a heck of a lot closer to the consumer than a soybean farmer. And so leading the charge on what Paul's talking about, I think is important for the broader industry. And if you look at organic as an example of, of driving change that has flowed to other, other sectors, um, it's important. So if, if impacts what you're looking for, I don't think uh, I'd have a significant concern if I was uh, in your membership's shoes. That's a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> Anyone else? Have can, I, can I offer an, another answer, Vani? And this, this sure. one comes from a different angle, I think. Right? You can imagine, you know, I was in Iceland a couple months ago and I visited a greenhouse farm that all of its heat was from geothermal and all its electricity was, was hydro Just There's just no fossil fuels involved with their production at all. And, you know, half the cars being sold there are electric already, right? So it's, it, they are producing food in a controlled environment uh, renewably without, without, without a carbon footprint. It seems to me that it's, it's inexorable will be that way in the United States. We will find a way to electrify everything. We will find a way to make all the electricity renewable. And there is a case where you could take some of the farmland in, in California that's growing fruits and vegetables move some of that to controlled environments in areas of the country where the where the soil isn't so uniquely fabulous and the climate isn't so great and repurpose that for for producing food in a carbon negative way right maybe some more pasture land for regenerative beef maybe some perennials like olives or something and then you've got a chance to repurpose parts of that farmland your questioner asked about to be levers pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. So I I, I think that, and, and by the way, you know, a couple million is a small percentage of a, of a couple hundred million, but it's, you know, we got to get all of it taken care of. And we got to start, we got to start from the beginning, you know, one at a time. What do they say about the starfish you throw back in the ocean? It mattered to this one. <laughs> all right. I actually think that is an excellent place to stop. And um, I really appreciate uh, your views and you you all sit in different parts of this whole system. And um, I'm excited that conversations like these are happening and that we're uh, like, we're trying to change a system here. And I think a lot of people who are working in carbon think of it as like a tool or a technology, but we really are trying to, to change a big system and we need all these different pieces of it for it to work. So thank you for your engagement and thank you for the work that you do. 
I loved how this conversation spanned the system where change needs to happen from government involvement through technology development and business model development to consumer demand. I said in the beginning of the podcast, I had a listener that still had the question, what is in it for the produce industry? How does this fit into what we are doing? That listener is Greg Johnson from the Produce Blue Book. I really appreciated that he followed up on this after the webinar and continued to try to break it down for his readers. I suggest you Google his article and read all of it. But his basic summary of why the produce industry should care about the carbon economy are three major points. One, consumers are asking for it. Just like consumers have started to place a priority on wanting to know food companies' sustainability levels, interest in carbon impact is also on the rise. Two, carbon reduction fits in well with sustainability efforts and improves growing practices. So these practices will improve soils and profitability in the long run. Three, growers can make money by removing carbon. Numerous programs are being developed through the government and private enterprise to compensate growers for storing carbon. All of this is new and it's really complex, but the carbon economy is certainly something the produce industry will be involved in. Stay tuned. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time. Bye.